Hello and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide, improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Well, hi folks, this is Lane here and uh, you're with Roses Radio and today we're holding a conversation with Christy. Christy, welcome to Roses Radio. Thanks for having me, Lane. So um, you've recently come across from Port Lincoln to um, Adelaide and you did so for work purposes. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do. So I do psychosocial rehabilitation in the homelessness sector here in Adelaide. So currently work with the Street to Home team, providing outreach services to people sleeping rough in Adelaide CBD area and also do some case management housing first, obviously. Yeah, what amazing work. How did you get into that line of work and and, uh, what was the journey to choosing that as a career? I was just lucky enough to score a transfer with the organisation that I was with in Port Lincoln when I was doing psychosocial rehabilitation in subacute care down there. Um, So yeah, it was just... I don't know. The job must have just picked me because I got the job. (laughs) Isn't it funny how that sometimes happens? You know, the job just picks you. What do you love about it? I just love being able to sit in that space with people. Yeah. Yep. Just give them my time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure they find it um, immensely valuable. Um, You also have five kids? Six. Six kids? Yes. Um, What's the breakdown of the kids and how old are they? So I've got Lily. Lily, yeah. Is the actual reason that we moved to Adelaide. So she's nearly 17. Wow, okay. Um, So she got accepted in the Australian School of Maths and Science at Flinders University for her year 12. So, yeah, that was... She must love maths and science. She does. And tell us about the others. So there's Isabel. She's 15. She's all about culture. Loves everything Asian, Japanese. Yep. And then we go on to Ivy. She's 12. She's what we would call our drama queen of the house. <laughs> uh, and then the twins, Chloe and Rachel, chalk and cheese, totally different, but yet so similar. And then finally got the boy there in the end, Seth. He's nearly eight. He'll be eight next week. Yeah. So yeah. how have they adjusted to, uh, to Adelaide life and, and shifting to you know, new schools and new environments? Oh, it's had its teething problems. It's probably more so to do around my work schedule now because it's not a nine-to-five job. It's shift work. So, you know, the hours are a bit more intense and I'm not at home as much as I normally am. But we've got great family support here. Have you? That's Um, important, isn't it? We've had the holidays to kind of break it in. So we've been able to do fun things. They can catch the train to and from home to the city and... Adelaide offers so much for the kids to get involved in that they're just lapping it up at the moment, I like to say. Tell us a little bit about you. Um, so where did you grow up and um, what's, what's your background? So I grew up on the East Coast between sort of Port Macquarie, Newcastle, Sydney areas, floated around, um, 
lived experience with mental health with family members. I come from a big family, so I'm one of eight. I'm number three in the pecking order. First girl. So, yeah, um, family system's quite unique. Yeah, what was that family system like growing up? Because you, I think you mentioned at, at one point that you grew up in a, a reasonably devout family and, and that, um, you know, mental health and suicide and, and things like that were not really talked about. What was that like for you? Um, well, I really didn't open my eyes until I was about 16 to all of those things. Obviously, we witnessed the mental health. It was just normal for me. It's normal <laughs> to not have mental health or see people acting a bit differently or ha- not having episodes was weird. It was not something that I was used to. Right. So it was pretty common in yep. growing up that the, the expression of mental health around you or, or even just um, some of the behaviours attached to that were often around you and, and you were quite comfortable with that. Yep, I was quite comfortable with that. It wasn't until I'd got married that that taboo kind of stepped in from, you know, the in-laws and what suicide isn't meant to be like and mental health isn't prevalent in society these days and it's still that stigma I notice still today with them. They've still got that same thought pattern and it's hard to change. Yeah, you, you talk a bit about um, stigma and, and how important it is that we break down that stigma um, how do we do that? We need to have those conversations and the education. So the education needs to start, I think, in the school system with the kids. The kids are going to come home and ask questions. Um, I've noticed in schooling these days, psychology is a big subject at the moment. They're, it's slowly coming up, having those conversations, making it normal. You know, um, Who doesn't have mental health? Yeah. You know, somebody in every family suffers some form of mental illness, whether it be anxiety, depression, suicide ideation. There is some form, it's a scale, and everybody's on that scale somewhere. Yeah, and you married Russell. Um, How long were you and Russell married before Russell took his life? Eight years. What was that like for you and the kids? being married to Russell and having to navigate the complexities of mental health in your own house. So Russell, as you spoke about, had mental health issues, suicide ideation and had lived that with that since he was a teenager, uh, multiple attempts at suicide. So you knew that when you first met Russell? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Okay. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, what we decided to do as a family was acknowledge, yes, Russell didn't want to accept help for his mental health and didn't want to navigate that. That was partially due to the stigma with the family and modern-day society. I'm a man. I'll just harden up. I'm not meant to feel like this. If I ignore it, it's going to go away. So Russell um, knew that he had mental health-related issues but didn't go to the typical places where he could have gotten some help for that? Yep, that's correct. And and did that mean that over time his mental health-related issues got worse? And at what point do you remember it transitioning from... Um, you know, mental health-related issues into some real issues around suicidal ideation. Was that a journey that he went on or was that always there? That was always there from when he was about 16. So that was, yeah, there long before I came along and it was just something that we we lived life to the fullest while we could. We knew those moments of darkness were going to be there but when the times were good, they were good. We just had to glide through the darkness phase, get out the other side and keep on going. How long would the darkness phase last? Like, what? Tell me a little bit about what it would, what it was like in your world, and the world of the kids when that darkness phase was a big part of what was happening. 
So I like to describe it as a roller coaster ride. Yeah. So we go up and down through these tunnels, platters of, oh, it's all right. Epic highs, manic lows. Um, let's go in the tunnel. Sometimes, you know, two to three days, sometimes six to eight weeks. Um, in the beginning, they weren't as frequent. So, you know, there'd be six months between episodes that gradually became less and less until it was days between episodes and then it was hours between episodes until he took his own life. What was that like for the kids? Uh, It was hard for the kids and that's where it takes a village to raise a child and I seek that professional help from a young age for the kids because being emotionally attached, I couldn't navigate them through the system but somebody with the education and added supports could do that on my behalf. So we quite regularly did family therapy, they did individual therapy, art therapy, just something that was their space. If they wanted to talk to somebody or they wanted to have questions, they could ask somebody and have no emotional attachment for the answer coming from mum. Like mum said it's because of this or mum became emotional because of this. It came from somebody that was had their best interests at heart and they could navigate through that with them and discuss it at a level that the kid needed for their developmental age and where they were in their life at the time. And that's something that you would say to others who might be experiencing something similar. Make sure you've got that support for the kids, yeah? Make sure that that they've got an outlet to be able to normalise the conversation and talk about what they're experiencing and feeling so that we're not repeating the same old thing that is making the conversation difficult and complex and taboo for a child who really needs to talk about what's happening for them. Yeah, definitely. You know, Medicare give you 10 free sessions a year. You break it up. You know, that's every eight weeks you've got a session or maybe seven weeks. Um, Schools these days, they have psychologists and counsellors that attend schools. You know, access all of these services. Just put your hand up and go, hey, we're struggling. We need some help. Yeah. Invest that time into the kids. Give them the education that they need coming from somebody that's not emotionally attached to the family and... Yeah. Still to this day, we access, you know, private health services, psychologists for the kids so to assist them in moving forward. Something might come up, just might be a situational crisis, but they've got that person that they can go to. How did that work for you? And, and what did you find really helped you um, as you navigated, as you say, the roller coaster, the tunnels, the ups, the downs, the twists and turns associated with suicidal ideation? I thrive on this high intensity environment. So to me, it was normal. Um, I just seem to work under that amount of pressure and still do today. It's the reason I work in a high, high risk environment now. But you just do what you got to do. But if I knew back at the start that, you know, there were services out there, there were people that could help, I could have prevented so much stuff or assisted in making strategies to move forward and maybe have a different outcome today, maybe not. Yeah, so it was, it's the, the kind of absence of knowledge that led you to roll up the sleeves and just do things yourself. But now as, those, as that knowledge has shifted and you begin to realise the extent of the support networks, what particularly might have changed for you? What, what would you have potentially done a little bit differently? Oh, I think... Matt, possibly, it's a possibility Russell may still be alive today. He okay. may still be living with this suicide ideation, but I'd be well equipped to deal with it in a better way than my knowledge prior would have been. Well, go and do it then. 
you know go and do it that's okay go and do it i'll support you which now i'm educated i know that's probably not the right response that i should be saying to somebody even though i'm offering support for you to do what you want to do it's probably not the right sort of support that somebody in that space needs at the time yeah tell us about russell what was he like this man. So not only was he a dad, he was an uncle. Um, he's got, you know, 12 nieces and nephews on his side of the family. Plus, you know, there's half a dozen on my, my side of the family. Loves spending time with the kids all the time. He'd be up at the crack of dawn, self-employed, um, concreter, built his business from scratch. You know, he'd be working in the mines during the week. Weekends he'd be out, we'd be building this business. Kids would be at the job site. Um just fun loving to be around he was that person that everybody wanted to be with um i don't know he was a larger than life character and you guys worked in the business together yeah so yeah, yeah i eventually gave up nursing and went over into the business with him and i did the book work and then it went to hey i'm 39 weeks pregnant with twins and i'm carrying pavers and pushing concrete down the driveway yeah. um, but those were the fun times you know being able to bring up the kids on a work site you don't have that luxury in an everyday job these days of being able to have the kids around all the time you know he was there cheering the kids on at their dancing competitions he would be the one in, in the crowd the kids would say God, he embarrasses me, Mum. So embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, he'd be cheering, he'd be, he'd be clapping, and you know the kids could be failing at that dance of Stepford or something, and he'd still be powering on and going, "You go, girl. You got this." Yeah, that's <laughs> memories that they'll never forget. Yeah, that's yeah, right. They're yep. those really positive memories, knowing that he loved them that much and knowing that he supported them. Yep. Um, you know, in such a manifestly. Um, inappropriate way in yep. many ways in such an embarrassing way um, they'll never forget that and that'll be really important to them hey yeah that's it that's yeah. I think they're memories that they cherish yeah and it's still spoken about at home oh, another one is a midnight feast so he used to when I was nursing um, he used to keep the kids up to midnight and he would give them chocolate and lollies and chips now <laughs> that wasn't allowed in our house no lollies no chips no chocolate We'll watch movies and we'll do all the fun things. Yeah. Um, we've been able to carry that on now, you know, keeping his memory alive. We don't do it as regular as we did in the start. Now we probably do it every couple of months. Yeah. Um, it just happens when it. we feel the urge, we just do it. Yeah. Yeah. How long ago did he pass away? 2015. 2015. So just four okay. and a half years ago. Okay. You say he'd lived with suicidal ideation. Um, what was that like for you? And did you have any idea that this was coming? Had you sensed that something like this was going to happen? Not at the time. So at the time for the six months prior, stuff was going on, you know, they were, we were living in two separate homes at the time. But now I look back on that last six months, I can see the lead up. But that's only because I'm educated now. Yeah. And I'm trained to see that. Okay, and for those who might be wondering what some of those signs are that they might like to look out for with your new knowledge, what were some of the things that you now notice that might have been an indication that he was at risk? So we would have family events and at this one particular family lunch that we had at the park, we'd gone back to uh, the in-law's house and, you know, afternoon tea and whatnot and he sat on the computer and he told us, these are the songs I want to be played at my funeral. 
I already knew this being married that, you know, these were some of the songs he wanted, but he voiced it to his brother, his sister, their partners, his nieces and nephews, his mum and dad were all in the room. Um, yeah. What was their so reaction? Can you remember? Everyone brushed it off, kind of ignored it. It yeah. was like, yeah, we'll deal with it later. Um, but, yeah, I just remember sitting in that space and I grabbed his hand and said, yeah, okay, you know, that's what you want, that's what you'll get. But at the time, I thought, yeah, maybe we've got a few years before I have to worry about that stuff. Okay. What other things spring to mind? Finalising all these accounts because we're self-employed, so finalising all of those last accounts, needing everything to be paid. Um, I just thought he was being OCD over all of the payments needing to be made before they were due. So, you know, we had this good credit rating if we wanted to move forward in life and stuff like that. Yeah, they're really complex things, aren't they? Because, you know, you can look at that particular moment and see it through the lens of both a positive and a negative, can't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just being organised. Just being organised. In fact, you know, for some people it's kind of like, oh, I'm so glad he's finally getting his act together and reconciling all those accounts. Oh, right. definitely. You know, because it's kind of yep. like, oh, I'm so pleased. He's, he's actually up and about and he's must be feeling good and, and he's doing the work that needs to be done and I've been asking him to do. And so I actually feel pretty good about that without recognising that that in some way might be a sign that he is getting things in order. Yeah, and definitely. At the time I was thinking, yes, the tax agent's going to love me when I go visit him in a couple of weeks because everything's going to be in order. Everything's filed correctly. You know, everything was in its place. I wasn't having to spend, you know, what I thought would have been a weekless, a week of sleepless nights having to organise it for the tax account. So, yeah, I just thought, yeah, sweet, organised. Yeah. So, yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about um, the actual moment. What are your memories of that day and that moment? So the kids, at the time, to put context behind the story, we were living in two separate places. So I was with his parents and he was about an hour and a half away in the family home. Uh, I'd taken the kids to school, done all the normal stuff and then he was meant to be at a job site and I tried to call and call and call and his phone was off. And then Was that unusual? It was very unusual because if he was on the job site, he would have answered his phone. So then I said to his mum, I can't get hold of Russell. I had some alarming text messages from last night. Do what you want to come and... What sort of texts? What, what was he saying? Oh, just make sure you tell the kids I love them. That was the last thing that I'd received from him. So, yeah, that morning and then his mum and I were getting ready to go and see him. Young bloke would have been about two and a half at the time. And then we received the phone call to say that he'd passed away. Um, it was just, yeah, an emotional mess. Everything just, it was fight or flight. Everything just decided to give way and couldn't control anything. Yeah. Didn't tell the kids straight away. Obviously, Seth was there because he wasn't at school at the time. So he had heard a lot of the conversations, um, more about the suicide and it was suicide. The girls didn't find out until the next day. Towards the end, Russell got involved with some organised crime, did a few things. Everything was becoming compounding. You know, the suicide ideation was getting 
worse and worse day by day. You know, he turned to alcohol, turned to self-medicating through different means. Um, And I took from that now that I've read that and read that is that he wanted to protect us from the other side, from what he couldn't protect us for on this side in the universe. So it was his way of saying it's going to be all right. Mm. Kind of a sweet thing to say. Oh, definitely, yeah. And something to take great comfort from, you know, the fact that whatever your belief, that that his intent was always to take care of you and the the girls and your little fella and and make sure that you were going to be okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it came from a good place. Yeah. That last text message was from a good place. He still wants to protect us, whether he's here or not. Um, You know, and that's his spiritual belief that he can do that from the other side. And that's what he's doing, you know. Do you feel that? Do Do you feel that his presence a lot of people talk about you know feeling the presence of the individual that's that's gone and it's not uncommon for people particularly in a in a suicide context to see signs and and to see moments where they believe that um, their loved one is speaking to them do you have any sense of that at any point in time yeah, it comes out in songs. So those songs that he wanted to play at his funeral okay. aren't regular songs that you'll hear on the radio every day of the week. Or um, I've had a couple of incidences at home with kids and I just kind of throw my hands up in the air and I'm going to go to work. I'll deal with it when I come home. You know, so just some behaviours, some grief and loss. You know, it's just all those compounding issues, which is quite normal during this process and part of our rollercoaster journey. Um and I'll be driving along in the car and then the song comes on. I'll be like, oh, that's a bit weird because, you know, <laughs> it's not a new song that he chose. It's quite an old song. Um, so, yeah, it's a Bone Slugs and Harmony song. So it's quite old. It's not, yeah, yeah something new. <laughs> and I'll be like, wow, okay, yeah, that's definitely a sign, you know. He's here. He's backing the decision that I'm going to make with the kids um, you know, just to support them through that. And yeah, you needed to walk away. That's okay. It takes a while to grieve the loss of someone. How did that grief manifest itself in your family for um, the next little bit, particularly given some of the uh, stigma and, and some of the judgment and, and some of the attitudes that existed within the family around suicide? What was it like afterwards? So straight after the funeral, five days after, I kind of had enough of the family drama and went, I'm taking the kids on a holiday. I changed my number and I never went home. 18 months later, I went, oh, I'm depriving the kids of being with their grandparents, you know, seeing their cousins, speaking to people. I think it's time that we reconnect and let the kids do this. Um, So I did that. But there's only been limited contact until now. So we've had a recent episode with my daughter with this grief and loss journey. She's only just beginning to unravel now and has recently just had a hospital stay with suicide ideation. Um, Obviously, it's been heightened because she's bereaved by suicide. But now the family have come a bit closer and have been a lot more supportive. Um, But I think that was part of their journey as well. They needed to go their way and do their thing. 
I needed to come and concentrate, just be a mum, you know, be there for the kids, worry about myself later. Um, and that's kind of what Lily did. She was the backbone of our family. She was the second parent at a young age. And so it's now it's her time for that grief and loss journey. So it's been at different times for everybody. But it's good to see the family support that's been offered to her now but previously hasn't been offered. What was that like for you when Lily's suicidal ideation emerged? I can imagine as not only a mother but someone who has experienced or has a lived experience of, of being bereaved by suicide, your heart must have jumped when that started to emerge. It did. Uh, it, it's quite fresh still because um, yeah. it was so recent, but no one wanted to help. Nobody. No hospital staff. At the time, she was with friends. The ambulance didn't want to take her. The ambulance refused to take her to hospital because she was 16. The friends at the time said, well, we'll put her in the ambulance and once she sits in that bed, you've got to take her. Um, and that's what happened. And I met them at the hospital and the same thing happened. Oh, no, we're just going to discharge her. And I'm like, no, this can't be done. I stood my ground. I became quite passive-aggressive, I'd like to say. Uh, it was hard watching her have these episodes laying in a bed. But at the end of the day... She needed support and she needed help and somebody was going to listen. And I made sure, <laughs> as a mum, I needed to make sure that that was going to happen. But it took me eight hours mm. to convince somebody to lose it at somebody, to get angry at nurse, at a nurse. I apologise if you're ever going to listen. <laughs> uh, but they needed to understand where I was coming from. And I still think if I didn't turn up straight from work, you know, with my keychains on, my fobs, my security ID, et cetera, et cetera, they wouldn't have listened to me. They would have just fobbed it off. You don't know what you're talking about. You've got no idea. You're not educated. What you're saying is wrong. Um, but we're coming out the other side <laughs> and it's still only early days, but she's willing to accept some support and talk through these processes and yeah, we'll just keep moving forward. Yeah, and um, your experience now and your knowledge, which has been shaped by your lived experience and the loss of Russell is now manifesting itself in your support for your daughter, which is amazing, which is fantastic. So all of that new knowledge that you've got, you can now use to help um, her through this phase in her life. Yeah, I, I made it my journey when Russell passed away to educate myself on the, the why. Why, why, why? Well, this is why. <laughs> uh, and to get to know how come, what's suicide like, you know, the underlying, is it always mental health? Is it not mental health? You know, is it a situational crisis? Uh, then I began to work in mental health and unraveled it a bit more and um, keep gaining knowledge every day. With every person I sit with in this space on a daily basis, I get another insight their insight and their journey and what they would like to see happen and you know and that kind of molds me you know not only as an individual but also when I'm at work <laughs> as my work self and also then it gives me that the upper hand when I deal with it at home as well it feels to me like you're a lot more curious about stuff yeah you know, definitely you know if we if we 
if we want to know what's going on with someone, we have to get curious about them and, and what they're thinking and the way that they're behaving and all those little idiosyncrasies that attach to what they're doing at that point in time. Yeah, definitely. And it's as little as, tell me more. Why do you think like that? And then be silent for a few minutes while they tell you. Maybe half an hour. It's just being able to sit in that uncomfortable space. And there's a little bit of hope in their conversation somewhere. And then you just grasp that. And then, you know, you might see them in a week later and go, oh, you know, how's your dog today? You know, and it's a dog they haven't seen for a while, but they're like, oh, you actually listen to me. I'm going to tell you some more. So you think that's really important that, that um, you know, that sense of active listening? Uh, what I've found is most people don't know that's what you're doing, <laughs> but just being able to sit in that space and hold that conversation and being involved. Tell me more. They enjoy that active listening and sometimes you don't even have to say anything. It's just the, the nodding of the head. Yeah, okay, is what gets the, the more information rolling because they become more comfortable in your space. Yeah. Yeah. What is the one positive that you most take away from all of your suicide lived experience? Without a little bit of rain, there's no rainbow. So I, I kind of take that as, you know, we need to have these, you know, down days, horrible times to make that rainbow brighter at the end. So it's about growth for you. Yeah. You know, it's... and. You know, it's about stretching into these situations and, and learning from them, isn't it? You know, you talk about, um, you know, that that um, you want everybody to be talking about suicide, you know, family, friends, neighbours, services, and these conversations need to be had in lots of different places and, and we need to really start to explore what this means in lots of different contexts. And that's part of your curiosity, but it's also part of you encouraging others to say, it's okay for us to talk about this stuff now. Yes, it's a horrible thing, but what are we going to do moving forward? Are we just going to keep dwelling and going, oh, that person suicided. Oh, you know, they're such a bad character. What about all the good things they did 10 years prior, you know, or even two weeks prior? And it's just, I think, opening up those conversations, making it normal. This is yep. an epidemic happening, you know. What, half a dozen deaths a day, I think, are at the moment. Suicide yeah. in Australia. Mm. Yeah. Um, because we're not talking about it. We're just sweeping it under the carpet going, oh, we'll deal with it later. So, you know, we, we always finish our podcast by asking two questions which we think are really important. And the first is, you know, what do we need to change in the way that society deals with suicide? Yep. Start talking about it. So what's the message that you'd like to put out to those who might be grappling with this very issue right now. Dealing with the grief, it's, it's where I think you need to reach out and get help. But try and keep things, if you've got kids at home, um, try and keep things as normal as possible for the kids. Go to school, go to sporting events, do all of the normal things that you would normally do. Face life like you were before this happened. Um, but don't get angry at yourself for feeling that loss. Don't get angry because you hate that individual at the time because that's just quite normal. Um, you will go keep going through that, you know, four years on. I still get angry. I still get upset. But it's just part of that journey. Um, but being able to resolve that trauma around the grief and loss is going to empower you to move forward and give you the tools that you need to move forward, to heal those scars and, you know, look forward to bigger and better things, you know. And There's it's not to say that you won't 
take the top off those scars every now and then. You'll, you know, you bump your arm or you bump your elbow and the scar bleeds again. It happens, doesn't it? It happens, yep. But what you're, what, what I found is, you know, between those times, it's getting, the distance is getting longer and longer. Okay. So to start with, you know, it would be a daily basis that would be upset or angry. Then it was months apart, you know, and then it just got bigger and bigger. Um, but things do get better, you know. There's hope, you know. If it's a loved one that you've lost, you may find another partner. You know, it may take years. It may take months. It's different for everybody's journey. But just holding on to a little bit of hope. Okay. And what about for those who are carers? As a carer, I think you've just got to walk beside them through their journey. You can't tell them what to do because you're not in that space. All you can do is support them. Let them be in the driver's seat. Drive along the road. You're there to support their decisions. Encourage some professional help if that's what they want. If not, just keep supporting them. But yeah, I would say don't don't tell them what to do because <laughs> chances are they're going to do the complete opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Just walk alongside of them. Just love them and and um, yep. let them know that um, they're important. Yep, definitely. Um, and uh, whatever it is that they need, uh, unconditionally, you're going to be there to support them on the journey. Yep, that's it. Yeah, pick up those pieces. It's all you can do. Just keep carrying them in your backpack until they're ready to take them back. Yeah, yeah. Yep. What a great conversation. Thank you so much for being on Rose's Radio. Um, you've been so uh, open and honest about your experience and, and uh, what a blessing it is for us for you to talk about what's happening in the family at the moment, particularly something that's so fresh and um, I think what really shines through for me is not only your knowledge and, and your practical experience as a result of your lived experience but also your courage in um, being so open about what that means and, and um, the challenges that are associated with um, you know talking about suicide within a family context and I wish you all the best and, and we wish Lily all the best as well and walking alongside each other and just bringing that unconditional positive regard and that love for each other uh, to the journey. Thanks for having me, Lane. It's been great.